Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Only a rarefied few authors have such an influence that their names become adjectives. Shakespearean, Dickensian, Orwellian. But my favorite author-turned-adjective is Kafkaesque. A Kafkaesque situation is one that is disorienting, absurd, and nightmarish, where all of the normal ways of acting and responding fall apart. Franz Kafka wrote about situations that were horrific, and some of his most evocative tales were about a kind of bureaucratic dystopia, which in modern life is pretty much a universal experience. By describing the bureaucratic uh, tangle of modern life, um, in a humorous fashion, uh, Kafka put his finger on something that ordinary people trying to uh, negotiate a phone system of, uh, you know, press the button to get to this office uh, and you never get there, or uh, trying to uh, fill out some kind of uh, bureaucratic form for uh, unemployment that that you feel a sense of helplessness in face of this bureaucratic world. Um, and so the word Kafkaesque uh, developed as a necessary descriptor of uh, a lot of our modern life. My name is Mark Anderson. I teach uh, German and comparative literature at Columbia University. I've been there all my career. Kafka lived much of his life under oppressive and often dangerous governments. Writing was his way of responding to the horrors he witnessed. One of his most famous works is a novel called The Trial. The main character is a man named Joseph K., who is arrested for a crime that has never revealed to him, nor the reader. Kafka wrote the book between 1914 and 1915, long before the rise of the Nazi party and the Soviet gulags. But the trial is often seen as an eerie prophecy for what was to come. So it's a haunting and, and quite terrifying novel, and for those people who experienced the totalitarian regimes of Hitler and Stalin in the 1930s and 40s, uh, this lack of justice, this lack of transparency, uh, this the brutality of uh, an authority that has uh, the ability to move against an individual in this way um, was seen as prophetic. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Mark Anderson to discuss Franz Kafka's The Trial. Franz Kafka was born in Prague in 1883, which at that time was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The empire covered an enormous area of Central Europe and included present-day Austria, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, Bosnia, Croatia, and parts of Poland, Romania, Italy, Ukraine, Moldova, Serbia, and Montenegro. The Bohemia, as it was known, that region of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that he lived in, was overwhelmingly Catholic and Czech-speaking. Uh, 
the German speaking community that lived in Prague was a distinct minority, but they had the power. So it's a little bit like as if um, Florida were 95% Hispanic, Spanish speaking, uh, but the official language of government was still English. Okay, that was the unbalanced situation. So the German speakers were resented by the Czech uh, population. Within the German-speaking minority in Prague, uh, the Jews were another minority. Many of the Jews were German-speaking or at least sent their kids, uh, their children to uh, German-speaking schools and the university. Uh, So they were in a kind of double minority, uh, hated as Germans, but also looked down upon or um, the victims of prejudice, not only on the part of the Czech Catholic majority, but also on the part of the uh, Catholic German uh, majority within the German-speaking world. Kafka was part of this double minority. He grew up in a middle-class Jewish German-speaking family. And like many German-speaking Jewish families in the region, they wanted to assimilate. His parents were part of the first generation to move from the countryside to the city where Kafka was born. And so um, Kafka and his generation found themselves in a kind of spiritual religious void. Uh, Their parents were no longer giving them that firm belief in their traditions and their religion that they had uh, experienced. But the surrounding uh, uh, society was not accepting them as Jews. There was still... There were still a lot of um, interdictions, restrictions on what Jews could do, whether they could get a position in the university or practice medicine and and so forth. So they found themselves in a void. And so Kafka and his friends became very involved in their Judaism. Kafka and his peers wanted to reconnect with their Jewish roots, which their parents were trying to abandon. But Kafka was more interested in the cultural aspects than the religious. He wasn't uh, somebody who went to synagogue on a regular basis. But uh, to be an artist, to be a writer, uh, also meant for him to discover that part of uh, Jewish traditions, uh, the Jewish legends, Jewish theater, Yiddish theater, uh, that his parents made a, a habit of avoiding. Uh, as if they were embarrassed. Uh, Assimilating German-speaking Jews often avoided anything having to do with Yiddish, uh, with Eastern Europe. What's the general arc uh, of his writing career? He started writing very young. Uh, The earliest things we have by him are pieces he wrote in his early 20s. Uh, He studied law, Uh, His parents pushed for him to have a kind of traditional, uh, respectable career. Uh, But he took a job uh, in an insurance company uh, that uh, allowed him to have much of the later part of the day to himself. Uh, He worked from eight in the morning till two without a break, went home for lunch Uh, had a nap, and then the rest of the day was his. And he used that uh, schedule to write in the evening and even at night. He started out writing short, impressionistic works about urban life. 
He wrote for roughly a decade without much success or recognition. His interest in Yiddish theater helped define his sense of drama, but his stories just weren't landing with audiences. He experiences in the fall of 1912 a miraculous breakthrough, which is the word that he uses. Um, uh, he writes uh, The Judgment, his first major story, and then he writes The Metamorphosis shortly after that, and the novel America, or The Man Who Disappeared, as it's sometimes translated, all in the space of a couple of months at the end of 1912, in which suddenly he's telling stories that are intensely dramatic and visual, where you feel the actors or protagonists are actors on the stage. This same year, Kafka met a young woman named Felice Bauer. She, like Kafka, was drawn to her Jewish roots. Like many of their peers, they wanted to take a trip to Palestine. And they begin a correspondence uh, with this idea in mind that they would perhaps travel together. Kafka already thinks of this woman as his fiancée, his future wife. And it's while he's writing to her that this breakthrough occurs, so that he's writing in a fever his stories and his novel, but he's also writing three, four letters a day um, to this woman. It's a real uh, breakthrough in many ways. But their relationship falls apart just a few months after it begins. When the relationship is no longer there, when the promise of this uh, marriage, this uh, engagement is no longer there, he stops being able to produce uh, literature. Um, and there's a long hiatus uh, that lasts about a year um, until year and a half, until he has another breakthrough um, and writes uh, very quickly uh, the trial and in the penal colony in the summer and the fall of 1914. Uh, and those two moments, the fall of 1912, the summer and uh, fall of 1914, uh, intense bursts of creativity uh, in which he writes his two the two of his three novels, uh, and a good number of his uh, most famous stories. Kafka was diagnosed with tuberculosis in 1917. He battled the disease for the next seven years, all the while continuing to write. In 1924, his condition grew worse, and he died in June at the age of 40. Kafka only published a few short stories during his life. He was hardly known outside of his own literary circles. His small profile during his own life is hard to believe given the height of his literary fame today. And it almost didn't happen because Kafka was plagued by doubts about uh, the quality of his work. Uh, none of his novels uh, was finished. Uh, so he left instructions with his friend and the literary executor of his estate to burn everything that hadn't been published up until that point. Uh, and... As a result, uh, if uh, his friend Max Brot had actually carried out that request, we would know nothing about Kafka. We would never be speaking about him. Uh, but Brot was absolutely convinced of the quality of this work, and he spent the rest of his life really dedicated to making sure the world knew who Kafka was. Max Brod succeeded in his mission, and Kafka became hugely popular around the world. 
Kafka becomes a, a, a true phen literary phenomenon after the end of World War II. Uh, there's a memoir by a New York Times uh, reviewer called Kafka Was All the Rage about life in Greenwich Village in the 1950s uh, that gives you an idea of how important Kafka was uh, for a certain bohemian alternative artistic uh, world in America, but not just in America. That brings me to the trial uh, because uh, Kafka wrote the trial in 1914. He died in 1924. Uh, as a result, he never knew uh, or experienced uh, the Nazis, the rise of Hitler to power. But uh, many people who experienced the persecution uh, and the totalitarianism of the 1930s and 40s uh, believed that Kafka, uh, and especially the novel The Trial, that Kafka was a prophet who had understood uh, what the legal system was capable of uh, and read the trial, where, which begins with two men uh, entering a man's bedroom and arresting him without ever telling him what he is guilty of. Yeah, it, it has prophetic qualities, which is remarkable. Um, could, could you try to summarize this enigmatic story? What, how does the story unfold? Uh, the Trial, as the title suggests, is a kind of crime novel. Usually a crime novel has a clear crime and there's a perpetrator who is revealed, discovered by the detective at the end. Uh, this is a crime novel in which the crime itself is never revealed. The novel begins, uh, someone must have been spreading rumors about Joseph K., because without having done anything wrong, one day he was arrested. We're told that Joseph K. is still in his nightshirt in bed uh, when uh, the men come into the room. Uh, their clothing is described uh, very precisely. So there are lots of very specific details that pique the reader's interest. Um, the other thing, of course, that Kafka does in this novel is describe uh, a world in which uh, everything is quite oppressive. There's not enough air to breathe in the rooms that he travels to. Uh, the ceilings are so low that uh, it, it's, it's cramped. Uh, the, there's a kind of strange logic that doesn't allow you to know whether what is happening to Joseph K is uh, reality or somehow in his head. Uh, bizarre, strange things happen to him that everyone seems to be an enigma wrapped in a riddle, uh, surrounded by a mystery, uh, to misquote Churchill. Eventually, he's arrested, but he's not put into prison. Uh, he is never told what he's guilty of. He tries to go to the law courts to discover what's going on, um, but doesn't get any further. Uh, and one has the feeling that he is treading in snow and never getting further, that, he's, uh, that he is 
he's uh, walking in circles, that he's not moving forward. But at the end of the uh, novel, the two men, there are two men who arrive uh, and he, uh, Joseph Gay seems to be waiting for them. Uh, they uh, escort him out onto the street to a deserted quarry. Uh, it's a moonlit night. Uh, he's completely alone. And uh, they uh, put a knife in his uh, chest and uh, his dying words are like a dog, uh, like a dog. Um, so it's a quite brutal novel um, and brutal because one's never told uh, what he has done. Is he guilty? Um, uh Many things in the novel indicate a kind of guilty conscience, but at the same time, it's a horrible, uh, he's given a death sentence um, and is never told who the judge is who's uh, decided on this punishment or indeed what his crime is. So one of the themes um, of the trial is clearly a, an examination of power. What, what do you think... He he's saying about power and and about bureaucratic power in particular? Kafka was somebody who was always writing about power relationships uh, and uh, understood power and was very good at describing power from the point of view of somebody who is the object, uh, the victim of power from the person down below experiencing the exercise of power. Joseph K., uh, it's interesting, he's not given a full uh, name. He remains a kind of cipher. People have said, well, this suggests that anonymity of the modern bureaucracy, uh, where people are reduced to numbers or initials or cases. Uh, and that is certainly true. He was very much aware. He worked in an insurance uh, company. He was aware of the use of statistics that were beginning to describe uh, individuals in terms of numbers and risk factors uh, rather than as human beings. Kafka hated this trend towards depersonalization. And he saw firsthand how this depersonalization made it easier to disempower workers. At one point, he became a civil servant for the Workers' Accident Insurance Institute, which handled workmen's compensation. Workers who had been injured on a job would come to him to see what they could get in compensation. But he noted privately, they come so meekly, uh, rather than storming the palace, rather than tearing down the insurance company walls, uh, they come meekly, their hats in their hands. Um, so he saw the dilemma that uh, the people who were the victims of power were often the most meek and willing to acquiesce in giving up their rights and giving up their own power and not protesting and not making use of the power that they had. Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, one of the things that you see in the trial that Joseph K., for whatever reason, um, accepts this notion of a trial and never gives up trying to 
play by the rules of this trial, even though those rules are obscure to him. It's some organization that works and he's never been given a copy of the of the rules. Uh, and he, uh, nonetheless, he wants to play the game. He tries to play the game, but it's, it's an uneven playing surface. Uh, and he winds up not being able to compete or to represent himself or to, or to win in any, in any significant way. He places faith in a rational government or rational bureaucracy and that faith is just simply not uh, rewarded. <laughs> it's a misplaced faith. Um, there is no rational order to society. It ends up being the you know the strong dominate the weak. That's right. That's right. And at the very beginning of the trial, uh, Joseph K is reflecting on what has just happened to him, and he says, uh, "I live in a society of laws, a state." that is ein Rechtsstaat, which means a state governed by laws. So he doesn't understand how this could have happened. Right? It's that lack of legal justification, even though he thinks he's living in a society governed by laws, that is the uh, real absurdity, the real existential dilemma that he's in throughout the novel. So as you've noted, part of the strong appeal of Kafka was that he prophesied and described the rise of ultimately cruel, powerful bureaucracies tied to you know state power. Is state power, state bureaucracies, do these rise because of you know forces of nationalism, forces of industrialization, scientific theories about, you know, how to kind of rationalize society. You know, what what are the other historical forces that led to this, led to Kafka trying to describe this emerging social phenomenon? I think one crucial aspect is that rationalization of industry, uh, modernization, uh, technology, those things were pushing society towards uh, an efficiency that I think Kafka understood was related to this um, assault on the individual. And uh, he, uh, the brother of Max Weber, uh, the famous German sociologist, a man named Alfred Weber, was actually in Prague, uh, lecturing about bureaucracy. Uh, so already before the First World War, uh, sociologists, uh, historians of society, of culture, were aware of those processes of um, bureaucratization and the uh, increasingly anonymous quality of uh, modern urban life. Uh, and they're describing it. Um, so these these ideas were in the air. Kafka gives them an unbelievable novelistic form, uh, but the ideas were there. And one of the very uh, strong ideas uh, in German society that emerges at the end of the 19th century is the difference between um, Gesellschaft and Gemeinschaft. 
those are German words meaning community and society. Uh, and uh, of course, what was going on in uh, Prague, but also uh, throughout Europe, was this move, uh, this huge demographic shift from small rural communities into big urban centers in which people not only left the countryside and agricultural work for the city, uh, but they lost uh, a community, a small world in which they were known, in which they knew the other members of the community and found themselves in a city where they were anonymous. Uh, and so German sociologists at the of the time described this as the difference between community and society, modern urban society. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Kafka's uh, world was aware of and that Kafka very much uh, wanted to describe in his novels. Okay, I, I'd love to talk now about the, the afterlife of Kafka. So you mentioned that he really takes off in world after World War II kind of globally. What accounts for his continued importance in the literary world? The reason Kafka continues uh, to be read is the same reason that teenagers often find him so funny and so uh, close to them, that they feel he speaks to their situation. Uh, a teenager is somebody who um, is already in many ways an adult and wants to be able to live with the freedom and the rules of adults, but is being kept from doing that. Uh, and therefore finds themselves, they find themselves in a situation of powerlessness even though they have an adult uh, awareness of their situation. And so I think Kafka uh, again and again describes uh, people in that situation of wanting the world to be rational, wanting to be able to live fully. Um, but in fact, they find themselves powerless and incapable of uh, of of defeating the authority that is uh, keeping them back. If Kafka speaks to the adolescent, uh, uh, he will also speak to the adult who has a memory of what it was like to be an adolescent. Um, he will also speak to uh, minorities or weaker states that are oppressed by majorities or more powerful states. Um, because he's an, uh, a kind of um, clinician of power or uh, uh, somebody who is able to describe power relations from the down below, uh, I think that he continues to speak uh, to people. And, uh, and I think that's the reason that uh, he became so... Uh, well-known after World War II, because World War II uh, had uh, given tens of millions of people uh, the experience, the direct experience of what our, the exercise of arbitrary power was like. In the 1960s, Prague was ruled by a socialist government that was controlled by the Soviet Union. Kafka's work was not allowed under this government, 
So people began reading and reproducing his works in secret. People copied his novels out by hand, um, and these handwritten copies circulated uh, under the table in secret uh, until a at a certain point, uh, the people in Prague rose up and protested. So uh, he has uh, continued, I think, to animate people uh, seeking justice. He speaks to one and all. What other authors have found him inspirational? And do you see any resonance in other media as well? Kafka had an enormous influence and uh, on writers uh, in starting already in the very much in the 50s and 60s. There was a kind of Kafka voice or style. There were his, his, his works were so instantly recognizable that they could also be copied and adapted. Um, and very quickly also people realized that uh, they're very visual. So Orson Welles made uh, a film based on the trial uh, in the 1950s. Uh, that interpolated scenes from uh, Nazi Germany and concentration camps uh, in a way that made clear the connection. There have been again and again uh, uh, plays and movies uh, uh, produced or based on Kafka's works because going back to the Yiddish theater, Kafka had understood that theater and drama and a kind of plastic visual mise-en-scene of his stories was essential. In the trial, Kafka showed readers the horrors we experience when subjected to an arbitrary exercise of power. It can make us feel alone and defeated. Kafka continues to resonate because his works show us that this feeling of powerless isolation is sadly more and more of a universal human experience. The trial allowed readers to understand what that's like, what it's like to experience that arbitrary power, uh, use of power. And I think that's tremendously important for the, uh, almost any world, any society we live in, um, that he allowed us to see that. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair On Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. And our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.